Hello and welcome to, uh, not Export Audio, the other one. <laughs> Ars Arcanum is the podcast, uh, an exploration of Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere. I'm Nora, I'm joined by Mark. Hi, I'm Mark. And calling in from another state, it's Autumn. This is the first time that you and I have recorded a podcast not in the same room in, I think, two years. Did we not record something when you were in Chicago the last time? I don't think we did. Maybe we didn't. Oh, well. Uh, People just... might be able to hear uh, everybody's favorite podcasting cat, Lem, scratching at the door, but I'm not letting him in. Cruel. <laughs> um, so if our audio sounds particularly good today, it's because we're both getting real snugly up on those microphones. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a blue snowball instead of a blue yeti. It's a whole new world. I should I should consider getting a a better microphone someday. The one that uh I record everything on um is like uh, it costs like twenty five dollars. I mean, it gets the job done. But mm-hmm. yeah, I would describe Nia's uh snowball as like getting the job done. It's perfectly fine, but I definitely prefer the blue yeti. If we were if Nora and I are gonna buy a second mic, I might buy just a second blue yeti. Yeah, I don't know how different they are now. I I bought this one in like twenty. Oh, I don't know, twenty fourteen, something like that. Maybe I think they're the same. I think they it's haven't changed a goddamn time. thing. Microphone. Microphone technology has not changed a lot in the last hundred years. <laughs> now that I don't believe. I, I that is some. I, you know what? We should watch Look, a technology connection we had, video and see if that's we true. We had like six emails explaining how speakers work the last time we went down this rabbit hole. <laughs> We're here. Has anyone had anything about... this week? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about things you've read. Um, for me, Mark's thing is lit up, but I can't hear him. Yeah, um, I think my go. mic's being weird. Um, I can hear you now, so. Okay, great. Yep. Um, do you, do you want out? Okay, sorry. Um, I have not read anything, so, uh, I don't think. Uh, I'll check my Goodreads, but I think, uh, I've got a pretty... I have not read much for the podcast this week, unfortunately. How about y'all? Um, well, uh, I finished uh, The Quantum Thief. Oh, hell yeah. I remember this book sounding really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, it, it is definitely like a sort of uh, compelling fast read, you know, like the ball starts rolling and you don't want it to stop rolling. Um, but it was also very fun to, like, every chapter or so stop for a second and be like, wait a minute, okay, so if that's what's happening so far, then it seems like probably his plan is blah, 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 and then, like, the way that the crime was pulled off is probably gonna be blah, 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 um, like, it's fun to speculate about Mm -hmm. things like that, and you can do that, like, as you're reading the book, um, and, uh, yeah, I I mean, <clears throat> I think this was already true when I last talked about this book the last time we recorded, but I, I love Jean Le Flambeur, the main character. Um, he's he's ridiculous. Uh, 
he just uh, runs around like being a gentleman thief and everyone has to let him. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. Um, sorry. It's, it's hard to like really talk about things that are particular to what I read in the last few weeks or last, few, right. the last two weeks. Um, as opposed to the kind of general take on the book that I already gave two weeks ago, mm-hmm. because you know, I don't want to spoil people. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's a really excellent book, and I'm probably going to read both of the sequels pretty soon, and I'm looking forward to that a lot. Um, yeah. Um. Oh, actually, I think in the last two weeks, I also finished rereading The Master and Margarita, uh, which I was uh, reading aloud to oh, a friend. Oh, yes. I, I'd been reading that one very slowly, because I was just reading that aloud to someone else, um, you know, every, like, we had, like, a weekly time, and then we wouldn't always, both of us, be able to make that, so it was, like, more like every two weeks, on average. But yeah, that's an incredible book. Um, it's all about the devil. <laughs> uh, and it's also about Pontius Pilate. And it's also about, like, a love story between two people whose lives are completely ruined. Um, yeah, it's a good novel. Pontius um, Pilate, everyone's favorite. That's um, a guy. Uh, I, I, hmm. I mean, I would not say that Pilot was my favorite character in The Master and Margarita. I think mm-hmm. that would be Margarita. I like Margarita a lot. Um, she, you know, she really decides that the best solution to her problems is to become a witch. And you know what? She's right. I haven't seen that fail anyone yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> you can always become a witch. Yeah. Who's uh. going to stop you, God? <laughs> Uh, I did, are you when you say that Pilot is everyone's favorite? Are you thinking about like uh, Molly's feelings about Jesus Christ Superstar? No, I was just shitposting because I was raised very Christian. Oh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. That is the literally the only thing I know about Jesus Christ Superstar is that one I would probably like it if I saw it, and two, um, Molly fucking loves Pontius Pilate. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think she also loves Judas very much, which is understandable because yes. he rules. I watched, I watched the film. I mean, I think there's multiple film adaptations, but like the film that I want to say actually came out, like I don't know, the film that came out in the '70s, like more or less concurrently, I think, with the Broadway show. Uh, I watched that with Molly a few weeks ago. It was a great experience. Um, I had never, like, listened to the show before at all, uh, and I think watching the movie was, like, a great way to first Mm. encounter that stuff. Um, It is very funny to me how, like, mostly empty of, like, actual, I guess, sort of um, theological commentary (laughs) that movie felt to me. (laughs) Um, Which is fine. It's an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. I didn't really want it to have anything to say. Um, yeah, but it is kind of funny because it is like a movie about the last days of the life of Jesus Christ, uh, and it ought to be kind of hard to make fiction about that without saying anything. But I think that movie kind of succeeds at that. 
<laughs> you know, at the end of the day, the Bible's just about some guys. I mean, that's not untrue. <laughs> I did, um, I remembered something that I read, if, um, if I may. Go ahead. Um, so last night driving to Chicago, um, I was like alternating back and forth between reading the Mistborn I had to read for this week and reading the Fellowship of the Ring I had to read for this week. Um, and I needed like a little break somewhere in there. So, um, I just opened up, um, Libro, the audiobook app I use and just like hit download on a random thing and re-listened to the first two chapters of the Tombs of Atuan. That book is still incredible. Um, when Rob Inglis opens up the book by saying, come home, Tenar, um, I just started crying. Just the first chapter of the Tombs of Atuan is so good and so much better on a reread um, when you know like what the book is going to be about. Um, I fucking love the Tombs of Atuan so much. Um, Fantastic for people. For people who uh, aren't familiar, the Tombs of Atuan is like the second book in the Earthsea cycle, um, and it is focused on a new, different character um, called Tenar. Um, and I won't say more than that because I just remembered that Nora read Wizard of Earthsea. Well, way to blow uh, up my der- fucking spot. <laughs> uh, so I'll pass it to you, Nora. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> meow meow you love me I dropped a book this week oh you did I don't think I'm going to finish the shadow of what was lost which was the fantasy book that I was reading that I that started out as focusing on like w- the sort of X-Men style wizard oppression Um, but it is kind of just a mystery box story and the protagonist just gets carted from one person to another who tells him, no, this is what the plot is about. No, actually, that guy was lying. This is what the plot is about. And there was no real interesting hook for me to keep going and keep digging into this, like, hole. Um, it's just some guy's derogatory. <laughs> <laughs> Um, as far as I got was when the, another guy tells the protagonist, you are the subject of the most prophecies of anyone else that the augurs who used to be in charge of everything, uh, would see. They had more prophecies about you than anyone else. And they knew you would be the super pivotal boy, uh, in this age and he's like I don't think so mate and then he keeps going okay Um, (laughs) so I dropped it I'm probably not gonna listen any more of it it's you know whatever it's weirdly boring which is not really what I wanted from fantasy Mm -hmm. I would so much read a Um, so much rather read a bad fantasy book than a boring one yeah uh It's got the Sanderson guy, though, doing the audiobook. Well, that's something. What's his name? Michael Kramer. Michael Kramer. So it does just kind of feel like I'm listening to Sanderson, except worse. 
<laughs> that does sound like kind of a disappointment. It's like Elantris all over again. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'd rather listen to an Elantris audiobook than this one at this point. Ugh. It's just, you know, stuff happens, but nothing's happening, you know? Uh, mm. And then I read The Wizard of Earthsea, which you all know already. <clears throat> mm-hmm. It's just a book about a wizard. So I love true. him so much. I love him. He's pretty cool. And he fights off some wizards. Or uh, dragons, not wizards. I don't think he ever fights Wait, a wizard. He doesn't fight them off. He does kill them. I guess he kills those little ones. I always forget about this part. I remember him talking to the dragon. That's what Yeah, the main dragon he talks to. But yeah. all the little babies... <clears throat> But all the little baby dragons, the children of the dragon he's here to talk to, he just, like, paralyzes them as they come uh, swooping down at his boat so that they fall into the sea and drown. Damn, well, maybe they shouldn't have swooped at his boat. Yeah, makes you think. <laughs> shouldn't have looked. <laughs> I, every time... I guess I'm going to spoil you on the tiniest thing in the world. Every time in later books they refer to him as a dragon lord because of this whole incident, I'm like, yeah, that's good shit. <laughs> that's the good shit. He, he's Ged, dragon lord. <laughs> Ged, the dragon lord, the sparrow hawk. <laughs> I, I love, I love um, every like piece of uh, fan art I've seen on Twitter of uh, Wizard of Earthsea and like, what they interpret Ged is looking like. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, for one thing, because like the artists I follow on Twitter aren't dumb, and so they do draw him like actually pretty brown, which is like yeah. a thing that Le Guin has confirmed. Like her Ged is supposed to be like relatively dark skinned, um, and of course you don't see that in a lot yeah. of like. There's been adaptations that make him white, and that sucks. Uh, but. Yep. The artists I follow on Twitter are smart, and they don't do that. But also, more importantly, they just draw him as like. I don't know, usually this, like, very angular guy, um, mm-hmm. like, kind of kind of awkward and weird looking, but definitely very, like, charismatic, um, and also they'll usually draw him as, like, different stages of life, so you get to see, like, this kind of, like, scrawny teen running around, and then this, like, old guy leaning on a staff, and uh, that's the good shit, I guess, is when you get to see multiple stages of wizard development. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was just, it was a good book. I liked it a lot. Um, I, I should actually, because rereading the Tombs of Atuan, like, I know what I'm going to think. I know I'm going to have, like, slightly different views on, like, certain things, but I know what I think of the Tombs of Atuan. Um, I should really read Wizard of Earthsea, because when I first read that book, I was not anticipating, like, being into Earthsea in the way that I am. And so there's, like, like the end of that book, his confrontation with, like, the Shadow of Death is, like, um, and, like, naming that thing. Um, that is, like, when I got her- hooked on Earthsea to where now I'm like, oh, I should reread the rest of that book, you know, knowing that I... Am in love with this series and like paying attention to more details than I probably hurt hit the first time around. You know, I don't think I have that much to say about Wizard of Earthsea in the same way that I don't really have that much to say about Tetris. 
<laughs> like because the experience of it is is just it's very good in a way that like words don't really do justice to. It's sort of just like if you if you described Tetris as like okay, well, it's like a puzzle game where you line up blocks. That's mm-hmm. gonna like not make it sound fun. Mm-hmm. But when you actually play it, it's just the peak form of video games. Yeah. I, yeah. I think one of the things that's incredible to me about A Wizard of Earthsea is, and, you know, I, I do not want to actually spoil the end, but I think it's fair to say that the the conclusion of A Wizard of Earthsea is basically perfect. Yeah. Um, It's like very clearly the thing that had to happen but also can come as a total surprise but i think also when you're reading the novel and you know the ending it is still very satisfying and very complete and very like um it it completes both something meaningful that the book is saying and also like an aesthetic shape that the book has like a like a beauty and mm-hmm. and the seeing it coming doesn't make it better or worse. It makes it a different kind of experience, mm-hmm. um, which I think is one of the ways that it really succeeds at being kind of um, a book that ev- that genuinely ev- evokes a feeling of like fairy tale or folklore mm-hmm. uh, in the way that like its conclusion feels inevitable. But then at the same time, it's very good at being children's literature, where, like, if you've never read a fantasy novel before, and I think a lot of people, when they read A Wizard of Earthsea, it is their first fantasy novel, it amazes you with the idea of how a fantasy quest works. Because on some level, this is the book that made a lot of what the modern concept of, like, a wizard and, like, a fantasy hero are um like right i don't know that this book is necessarily quite on the level with lord of the rings in terms of influence in the fantasy genre but it's like that's a discussion you could have you know Mm -hmm. well and i the other thing i just think like i love the way um i think le guin has like a strength at endings as a writer, which is like very rare. And like, I really appreciate because like, um, you know, getting away from Earthsea, like left hand of darkness is not a book I like, but I remember really loving the ending of left hand of darkness, you know? And in some ways, like if you stick the landing, like I'm going to walk away a lot happier with a book than if you had like a really good opening, um, that peters out. Um, and so even the like the two Le Guin books that I've read that I didn't love the journey, she always sticks the landing um, in just like a way that I'm like, oh yeah, she's just my favorite writer. <laughs> I think it's cool when there's a guy and he's a wizard. I also think that's cool. It's that's very true. Um. It's also, the book is also like a formative thing for the concept of wizard school. Um, hmm, I guess so, yeah. Like, 
wizard school is pretty important in that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you definitely don't get the fucking wizard school in uh, Name of the Wind without this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about that, it's a, but for sure. It's a much worse version of this, for sure. Um, um. I was thinking a lot because one of my favorite fantasy things growing up was Aragon, and then I have enjoyed this as well. And I read Name of the Wind, and I'm just... I was just thinking about more name things. More like uh, true name based magic stuff in fantasy because i'm sure other people have have like worked with this concept it's it's a cool concept um i just don't know of very many because the thing that always happened when it was that i liked aragon and people online said oh this is a ripoff of uh earthsea and dragon riders of pern so that's all i knew about but i should read dragon riders of pern though we own a small paperback of the first book. I bought it just recently. Dragonflight, right? Something like that. Oh, man. Dragon Riders of Pern does seem like something that I maybe want to check out someday. Like, soul-bonded it, dragon riders is such a good fucking thing to do. It seems like both a thing I would like and also a thing that would, like, you know, just fill out my understanding of, like, this genre that we're going to spend, you know, years See, podcasting about. <laughs> This is also why there's a part of me saying, what if I played Drakengard? <laughs> I'm not actually familiar with that, presumably because it's a video game and I don't know anything about video games. The main character of Drakengard is bonded to a dragon in some way that may not ever be explained. I'm unclear on that. But okay, he gives up his tongue, I think, as part of a contract. So he doesn't okay. he can't speak and he and in return he is bonded to this dragon. I don't actually know. I'm this is what I'm picking up piecemeal, but it's a guy, there's a dragon, they're in love, I think, and they're soul bonded. It seems mean, neat. That does sound good. Um I'm thinking right now about uh the Pit Dragon Chronicles, which is a tetralogy although hmm, i feel like this is this is one of those when i read it it was a trilogy and then she wrote another one or something like that um yeah oh man she wrote the first three in like the 80s and then she wrote a sequel in 2009 so that's a that's a trilogy with a bonus that's not a tetralogy Uh, yeah yeah, i will the the wikipedia page says and on the header, the pit dragon trilogy and then the first paragraph starts the pit dragon chronicles is a series of yeah. Anyway, that that is a. I think that's a great book. Although I have not reread it since I was a kid. But like, what I remember of those books is that they are like science fantasy because they're set on a planet. You see, um, I love how you can just say that something is on a planet and then that makes it clear that it's kind of science fiction. Um, but anyway, uh, it's you know um, this like kind of weird and like uh, oppressive far future society and. The main characters are, like, uh, you know, these, like, I think they're, like, orphan kids, and they're, like, working, taking care of dragons, and it's, like, this really tough work. And then uh, one of them, like, uh, steals a dragon to raise for his very own. Um, And there is, I believe there is psychic shit, but I don't really... 
remember how it works and it might not show up until a while into the series so i don't want to spoil anything about it but just Mm -hmm. like i'm pretty sure there's some psychic human dragon bonding stuff in these books uh and you know also the main character is named jackin spelled j-a-k-k-i-n so you know that's (laughs) good fantasy (laughs) me too you're also named that (laughs) yeah i'm (laughs) jackin Um, before we get into Mistborn, um, I'm going to put out a request to the listeners and maybe I'm going to narrow this down to just Juo specifically because the, oh, if no. all of you, if all of you do this, it's going to be annoying. So I'm just going to ask Juo to do this. You could when you simply hear... DM him. <laughs> I could, okay, sorry. but I need this. I need this to go through time because I need a reminder set in one week. So, Juo, when you hear this, post an export chat. Autumn, catch up on which hat? <laughs> Autumn, you could like set an alarm on your phone. <laughs> it's more effective. It's more effective if other people peer pressure me. I'm like, I think three volumes behind at this point, and I want to talk about it on the show. So, I was I. Juo, remind me about this in one week when you hear this. Okay. <laughs> okay, Juo, I have also a request for you. In six days, I want before you hear this, I want you to not do the thing that Autumn said. <laughs> What's this stupid like coffee pasta about? Uh, like, go to the GameStop and ask them if they have PlayStation. Do you know what I'm talking about? Go, go, yeah. Battletoads. <laughs> Well, no, that's Bambi a different thing. The copy pasta is the green M&M, and she says that you need to go and get Bambi for PS2. I was thinking of calling GameStop and asking if they have Battletoads, which is a different meme. Okay, yeah. So the green <laughs> M&M one is what I'm thinking about right now, but if you don't know what we're talking about, I'm very sorry. I'm the green M&M now. You're, um, you're a sex symbol. That's right. Do you want to talk about Mistborn, Mistborn chapter Should we talk about another uh, sex symbol, Kelsier? Yeah. Oh, oh, man. That's the worst thing I've ever said. No, it's not. I'm, I'm try- man, I'm trying to imagine um, Brandon Sanderson actually trying to write, like, kind of a roguish, sexy guy. Like, trying to write a guy who would, like, successfully flirt while fencing with someone or some shit like that, right? Like, obviously, Kelsier is not, like, a um, fencing with a rapier and quipping type of rogue. Mm -hmm. But basically, I was trying to imagine uh, what Brandon's idea of hot Kelsier would be like. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, obviously, we could argue whether Kelsier, the book, is hot or not. But I don't think the book is trying to present Kelsier as... The thing about Kelsier is that he's, he's actually just too wholesome. Yeah. yeah, I think I think he's going for a hot character in Kelsier, but he can't get there because um... he's not evil enough. It's not like a, <laughs> there's not enough <laughs> like I mean compelling like bad boy energy. Like the most yeah. bad boy energy he has is being willing to commit revolutionary violence. Yeah, <laughs> the book really thinks that the fact that he is willing to kill people sometimes, specifically people whom he has, like, a decent argument deserve it, that that makes him, like, super morally dark, and it's it's very funny. Um, because it's just, like, he's literally a 
um, a thief, like a criminal, mm-hmm. and everyone mm-hmm. he works with is totally fine with killing people. So it the fact that Kelsier has this specific thing where he's like, oh, I, I only really want to kill, like, nobles and people who have, like, sided with nobles, you know, like, nobles mm-hmm. and their soldiers. Um, mm-hmm. Like, that's actually a pretty strict moral mm-hmm. thing because i mean based on everything we've been told so far all these like thief people kelsier works with are like backstabbing each other constantly although i guess we're supposed to met- believe that his friends are better than that but yeah, like his friends are above that quote unquote yeah but, i mean like, let's is... i mean let's okay. not get too far ahead of ourselves but that is a yeah. character's perspective yeah how yeah. about um, so I think the format we're gonna do is I'm gonna summarize chapter three I'm gonna summarize chapter four I'll summarize chapter five and then we'll circle back and do the chapter headers at the end okay uh, sound good sure I was thinking we could just start off with the chapter headers but that's also fine no I like doing the chapter headers at the end okay I, I kind of like that idea too actually um okay so chapter three um. Vin is back in Cayman's lair and um, is nervous. Feels like the obligators just let them all off too easy um, and is worried about, like, obligators coming and, like, hitting the lair. So she makes a plan to run out with another guy in the crew named Ulef, uh, and she goes to her, like, bed area. I don't think she has a room um, to get her stuff, and when she comes back out... Um, Ulef is, like, snitching on her to Cayman. Um, Cayman proceeds to start beating Vin, um, but just at that moment, Kelsier and Doxon walk into the lair and are like, um, like, deal with Cayman, like, beat the hell out of him, um, and have the rest of Cayman's crew, like, dispose of him and, like, promotes somebody else to become, like, the leader of what was Cayman's crew. Um, and basically are like, hi, we're Kelsier and Doxon. You've heard of us. We're famous. Um, you had a Steel Inquisitor coming here. Uh, I took care of him. So as payment, I want your lair. I want all of you to work for me, and I want you all to get the hell out for an hour. Um, so I can... He has them leave, and then he talks to Vin in Chapter 4, and then they're going to come back and leave again. It's weird. Anyway... But that's chapter three. Um. Well, he's borrowing their lair for a meeting later that night. Yes. But he lets them come back and, like, grab their stuff. Yes. That's it. Okay, okay. So, yeah. Um, But we also get the test, right? No, the test is in chapter four. In chapter three, I believe he just has them all get out. And then chapter four is the test and all of that stuff. Because... No, 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 because chapter four no, is the right. meeting. You're right. Chapter four is the meeting. Okay, so let's talk right. about so Alamancy. So, chapter three continued, <laughs> and then once I finish the summary, we'll kind of discuss all of chapter three as one big thing. Okay. So he has, he has um, what was Cayman's crew leave? I don't remember the name of the guy he promotes to being the leader. If it matters, I'll find. I'll Milev. figure it out. Milev. Um. And he pulls Vin aside and he's like, I want to talk to you because he suspects that she is a Mistborn and she is. And he explains kind of to Vin, but Vin knows some of, some of this, not much of this, but a little bit of this. 
but mostly is explaining to the reader. So there are there are in this world miss okay. <clears throat> Should I need to pull out back pull back one more step. So there there is nobility um which is to set, like 10 bloodlines um appointed by the lord ruler. People born to those 10 bloodlines have the potential to become mistings or mistborn or allomancers. Mistings um, have one power. So, like one of the one of the powers we see is like being able to pull on somebody's emotions and like calm them down. Another power we see is like you know being able to push and pull metals. We'll get through the rest of the powers as they come up. Um, or exceedingly rare, exceedingly rare are mistborn people who possess all 10 powers. Um, you either just have one power or you have all 10. Um, and they say all power, isn't it? Doesn't he say eight? Because there's the eight metals and then there's the eight. two high metals. Yes, so yes, I, you're right. Yeah, because this is so confusing because he says eight, and then later in the chapter says ten, and I wasn't sure. The, like, the what... reason for that is that, like, there's like a setup for this that'll be fully explained later, but there's eight powers, and then there's mm-hmm. the two high metals that are different from the eight powers. Okay, okay, that part. I think could have been better explained here because <laughs> I totally lost track of that part. I think probably next week we'll get the chapter of Kelsier explains all of Alamancy to Vin, but okay. Um, Alamancy so, being the actual form of magic that of which Mistings and Mistborn are like categories. All of them are yes. Alamancers. So, um, yeah, Kelsier figures out that Vin is a Mistborn Kelsier himself is a Mistborn, um, and um, the meeting is going to be with a crew of, like, Misting Thieves later. Um, and what was the last thing I wanted to touch on here? Um, there was one last detail I wanted to hit, and I cannot recall it, so if it comes to my memory, I will bring it up. But yeah, thoughts on Chapter 3? <sighs> little exposition heavy yeah um well uh so kelsier is just in charge of everything now Mm -hmm. um because he's so badass yeah and he hates when you know uh someone is being awful to vin um, he, he, this is like the second time Kelsier has shown up and be like, been like, in order to defend this girl, I'm going to do a bunch of impressive, like, uh, dramatic violence. Yes. Um. He hates when girls die. <laughs> yeah. He's definitely or got beaten, that, like. Or are abused. He's got that classic, like, tough guy thing of being like, I. I just can't stand people who hurt kids, you know? Or Mm -hmm. I I guess Mm -hmm. I don't actually know. I think it's maybe kind of a combination of, like, woman respecting and, like, child protecting, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's both a little bit. Both of these cases so far, they've been female children. And, I mean, both of those female children are, like, 
I mean, one of them was literally about to be sexually assaulted. And the way that Vin is treated by everyone, like, I'm sure there are also, like, male children with this crew who are also getting beat on. Like, I think it would be weird if there weren't. But the way that Vin is Mm -hmm. kind of at the total bottom of, like, the social ranking, it seems. And also that, like, specifically the threats that she's afraid of on a moment-to-moment basis. A lot of it, I think, has to do with, um, you know, the threat of sexual assault towards her. Mm -hmm. Like, she's often thinking about not wanting to deal with, like, men in the crew who, like, uh, make passes at her. Or, like... She mm -hmm. also, like, mentions that Ulef is... Like is Ulef is specifically mentioned in the context of being part of the category of guys in the crew who have never tried to abuse her. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um and and so like Yeah, so so there's like a, a a absolutely like a strong gendered element to all of this. It's not just because she's like a kid and, and she's mm-hmm. easily pushed around. Um and clearly that upsets Kelsier so much. I think if uh, Kelsier met a kid who was a noble, he would kick that kid no problem. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> true. I mean, I, I would be oh. interested to see what Kelsier's reaction would be to a noble like girl who was being you know, mistreated by her family. Because, like, it's not as though that's not real. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, would... I guess I'm asking, would his, like, girl yeah. protecting kick in before his, like, class rage? I th- I think... <laughs> I think it would. I think it would, but I, I don't remember. And I, I... I'm interested to see where that goes. Because I think that's... Yeah. Um, I remember the last little, like, exposition-y detail I wanted to include in the summary, which is that... We also get an explanation of why, like, I'm using heavy air quotes around this because I think this is a very loaded term. Um, Half-breed children, like, half-noble, half-ska children are so, like, hunted down by the steel ministry is because they, um, they don't want people like Kelsier and Vin running around. They don't want Mistborns or or even Mistings who are uh, Ska. Yeah. So. I do want to talk about this whole like hereditary magic thing, but I feel like it's going to be a little bit of a downer, so I'd yeah. be very willing to talk about other stuff first. Um, I, I just want to say despite everything, despite how corny woman respecting he is despite how sort of marvel hero quippy he is i love kelsier so much as soon as he like walks in and like does a cool violence thing and kicks all their asses and is like i dealt with that steel inquisitor and then it's just like as soon as people are out of the room he's just like laughing and joking and like haha where's the wine at you know I love him so much. My awful, <laughs> shitty child. Piece of shit. He's I kind of die like... for him. I guess he's kind of... Like, I've been describing him on Twitter as Hope Punk Batman. Maybe he's kind of Hope Punk Jack Sparrow. <laughs> I, I... I feel like... He's... He's kind of like, what if Batman and Superman were the same guy? Oh. 
What if Batman was a dog boy? <laughs> God. God. And his toes um, were out. Oh my goodness. I'm, I'm the fucking feet thing. <laughs> Barefoot is his... legal. Oh no, it's illegal. He loves breaking the law. <laughs> he's a criminal. That's why he's barefoot all the time. Okay, I do want to like talk about that a little bit, mm-hmm. but I think it's in, I think it's in the next chapter, not this one. It's in the um, last chapter we'll be talking about. Okay, great. Yeah. So yeah, put, we'll putting put, putting we'll the top with the concept of barefoot Kelsey on hold. Um, you know, yeah, this is fun. I I do think that like. One of the things that's a little uh, weird to me is, um, like, how did you two read the vibes on the moment when Kelsier is just, like, ordering everyone around totally peremptorily? Like, he literally just uh, says to Malev, whom he has just made the leader of the crew, now get out. Like, he forces mm-hmm. Malev to leave his own base and... Not just leave the base, but he insists on him being, like, promising to make it truly private, no guards, uh, and you absolutely are not going to betray me. Like, he just orders the guy around and talks to him in a very intimidating way. And part of what he's insisting on is absolute privacy with Vin. And how, how did that feel to you? What did you make of Kelsier, like, emotionally, I guess, in that moment? What was your reaction to him doing that stuff? I guess for me, um, I, this kind of ties into, like, what we were talking about with the women respecting is that, like, I, I feel like Kelsier is, um, a guy who walks into every room and one is convinced he's the coolest and smartest person there and two, like, expresses this by being, like, kind of paternal and overbearing to people, um, you know, like, does the Columbo, like, one more thing to, um, Milev, like, six times, um, but it's this very, like, and I'll be watching you, and, oh, make sure, you know, like, you sweep up before you leave, and shit like that, (laughs) you know, make sure, um, all my directions are followed, like, exactly as I've told them, and, like, don't deviate at all. He's, he is always like kind of projecting this like very cool image of himself. And it comes out in this, yeah, very paternalistic way. I think that that like they mentioned this, um, because he's like Mm -hmm. playing up his reputation as the survivor of Hathsin. Um, and as this like Mm -hmm. daring and bold and like irrepressible personality. Um, and he, it's not that he isn't also like that, but he is like playing it up in these, scenes where i assume he's also using allomancy on them in this scene very possibly yeah um i think so. i think like it, it would well no i think he's maybe not using it because in chapter four um vin is like i could tell when kelsier was using emotional allomancy um and she's saying this in contrast to not being able to tell when Breeze is using it. Um, so I I think maybe he's not using emotional alamancy here, because I think Vin would have remarked upon that. Maybe not. 
Um, he's certainly like... This is the face. This is the guy. You know, he's he's the he's the charisma guy who comes in and makes a good impression. Um, the George Clooney of their Ocean's Eleven. Sure, I haven't seen that, but yeah, <laughs> I saw that last one, but not, not any of the others. Um, so, uh, oh. yeah. Um. The reason I bring up that section is that it was kind of a, like, so when when he, you know, insists on this time alone with Vin, Vin is uncomfortable with it. Uh, she's thinking to herself that mm-hmm. he's a powerful man, and she knows from experience, or, or instinct, actually, this Kelsier was a powerful man, and instinct told her that powerful men were dangerous, and... So she's, she's like, afraid of what he's going to do here, and she's thinking about what would happen if I just cut and run. Um, but I felt as though... Basically, what he actually wants to do is test if she's an... Uh, test if she's, like, really an Allomancer and maybe even a Mistborn. And, like, he has totally, um, basically sympathetic motivations towards her here, you know? Like... He wants her to understand the extent of her power and he wants to like help her be like safe and powerful. Like he is, it, it, certainly it's paternalistic, but it's also like literally it's paternal, it's caretaking. All he wants to do here is help her and help her like grow, you know, like he wants literally to empower her. Mm-hmm. Um and we know all of that because we know what he's been thinking about how he's interested in her allomantic power. Uh, and we just know in general that he's like this really good guy, basically. <laughs> um, and so for me in this moment, I was like, this is raising the idea that Vin is concerned that Kelsier is going to assault her because like he sent away all the guards. He insisted on nobody watching and like, this fear of assault has been one that is on Vin's mind all the time. And she's thinking about how he's a powerful man and he's dangerous. But at the same time, it does feel like the novel doesn't quite understand that it's like constructed this really obvious implication because Vin. Yeah. Vin like, yes, like she struggles to do it, to trust him, but like Vin doesn't, actually seem to be conscious of that danger from Kelsier at all after this moment. It's like she knows as clearly as we do that actually his intentions are good. And it's I don't know. <laughs> it's strange. Yeah. I yeah. She she's such a guarded character and it comes through so powerfully in these chapters. Um and like she does let her guard down around Kelsier a lot more than I would have expected her to. And she's still, it's not like completely like defenses down, but it is a lot more than I would have expected from her. Um. I I think that this is one of those places where um, I'm not saying I want the idea that Kelsier might physically assault uh, Vin to be like more foregrounded in the text. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it would be nice if Kelsier was actually a little bit more um, ambiguous in his sort mm-hmm. of presentation towards the world. Like, 
like, yeah, we are, I think we are meant to believe that he's like the scary thief leader because of the way he acts towards this crew. But like, he's actually very, um, I don't know. Uh, it, it is very easy to imagine like some sort of, uh, criminal lord, you know, like the lord of the criminal underground, uh, taking over a thief gang like this and doing it in a much, much more violent or much like more overtly intimidating way. Um, like Kelsier does like beat and humiliate the previous leader. Um, but it, that's all he has to do, I guess is what I'm saying. And we know we hate that guy. Um, I, I would like Kelsier to have a little bit more edge. I think is what I'm saying. I was thinking about this with the chapters we're going to get to of like, if this was a TV show, he would automatically be more ambiguous because we wouldn't get an internal monologue, you know? Uh, yeah. If, we were, if this were a comic book and we just watched him kill 30 guys, <laughs> for example, um, but we are just given this constant reassurance, I guess, that he is... Exactly mm. as, like, on the up and up as he says he is. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, this is actually something that, um, like, when Olivia read this book, she kind of said this, that, like, mm -hmm. it's hard to take Kelsier's, uh, ambiguity or, like, the tension between him and Vin seriously when we also have his perspective and know that he's totally on the up and up. Um, yeah. And I was like, at the time, I was like, man, I don't know whether I'm going to think that when I get there. But now that I've gotten here, I'm just like, yeah, that's a correct interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> and it's unfortunate. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I think I kind of think the book would. um, At least in the. Well, whatever. I think the book in general would work a little better if we just had Vin's perspective for most everything sometimes um partially because i love her perspective and partially there's a little more uh, active description of like what allomancy is and, and what it feels like this is the chapter where we learn there's eight basic metals and that uh mm -hmm. you get access to the metal by literally consuming like an alcohol solution that contains it. I mean, that was kind of implied before when Kelsier was like drinking those little vials. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think now we are really getting it confirmed that the way that you use these metals is by literally having them in your body. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, <sighs> yeah. Um, Tasty. I guess, can I talk about like, the way that the uh, magic is inherited a little mm -hmm. bit. Yes, yes. Let's, so let's end on I, that and then go to like, chapter four. Yeah. So, okay. Explicitly, allomancy is a skill that you are either, like, magically born with or not. Um, I don't want to explicitly say it's genetic because I think people tend to, like, describe anything that could be conceived of as, like, heritable as genetic and i think that's not always it is possible to have a magic that passes from parent to child in a piece of fiction that is not 
uh, understood as like a sort of pseudo genetic like thing. Mm. But I think this really is being understood in that way, basically. Um, there's an idea of uh, noble lines that have greater or lesser like breeding strength. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I think we are meant to understand that it means that like these are groups of people who have a high incidence of whatever thing in your body makes you have allomantic powers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's not unbelievable, but kind of weird and interesting that something that is heritable in this way also has this very strict structure where it's like you always either have only one of the powers or you have all eight. There's no in between. Mm -hmm. And I am also like unclear on, because it seems like the strength of the power that you have basically comes from how much of the metal you have in your body. Um, And so Mm -hmm. the thing I'm wondering about is like, does that mean that every, say, I don't know, smoker, that's one of the types of um, misting you can be. Does that mean every smoker is effectively identical? Uh, uh, or are there different and lesser levels of aptitude, different ways of experiencing it? Um, it's just like, for example, if you think about, I don't know, red hair, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's a, a rare thing to inherit, Um but some people do, and there are certainly, like, families where there are a lot of red-headed people, and the children of those families are more likely to have red hair. But it's also, like, you can have different shades of red hair, and, like, your hair can be, right. <clears throat> generally speaking, reddish, but also kind of blonde or brown. Um, and allomancy does not seem to work like that at all. It is really an on-off switch. Mm-hmm. Um I think as for, like, the variance in, like, like, we mentioned the difference between Kelsier using emotional manipulating elementsy versus Breeze doing it. And I think there is a difference in, like, personal technique or training. Mm. Um, and, like, the when we see Kelsier using the sort of kinetic uh, based powers, there is a sense of like, I know how to maneuver myself around this power and how to like, how to apply it in specific instances because I've been trained in a specific way. But I think that like, if you eat a gram of iron, you have a gram of iron and that's however much like power you can get out of that is the same. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, I, I think this is, like, I don't know. I, I just, I don't love just a, a straight-up inherited magic in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't love, like, the implication that there is something kind of objective and true about this hereditary nobility system, you know? Yeah. Um. I'm not trying to say that I can never get along with a fantasy setting where there is some kind of inherent magic power that you're either born with or not, and that that can be, and that it is sort of traceable noble bloodlines. Like, 
there are versions of that kind of narrative that I've enjoyed quite a bit. Um, but I, this one has not yet really justified itself to me, I suppose. And, um, I don't know with all the stuff that the book has been doing with race so far that made me so uncomfortable introducing a concept like this does not, it hasn't built up a lot of goodwill for me. Mm Mm-hmm. Not that I should really be in the position of trying to say objectively, like, okay, this book is too racist <laughs> to have, like, heritable magic in it, whereas other books prove themselves to be non-racist and therefore they're allowed. Like, ugh, that's a silly distinction to make, and I'm not the person to make it. I just mean... Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There there are problems with this idea, and I think this book doesn't really do anything to solve or, like, background those problems. Um, yeah, no, I just, um, basically agree with everything you said. Um, should we move on to chapter four? I'm ready. Um, so chapter four, we get the meeting with Kelsier's crew. We are first introduced to Breeze and Hammond, um, who I believe starts going by Ham here. If he doesn't go by it here he's gonna go by it later anyway breeze and ham breeze is a um emotional alamancer who sort of like soothes people and he's like when he walks in the room he's like manipulating vin into like going getting a like glass of wine for him with alamancy um i say this because like you know we're going to get a lot of like here is a brief, like, one-note character introduction for this person um, <laughs> in this chapter. Ham's one note is that he is, um, I forget, He he's the sort of alamancer where he can make himself buff. I forget what that's called. Thug. There's um, two words for it, but he calls himself a thug. Um. So, yeah, he's a thug, but when he's not beating the heck out of people, he's like asking these like sort of like it's supposed to be like philosophical questions i think they're like philosophical questions in the same way that like when you get high and you're like oh man what if everything was like one you know i feel sometimes they're more in this chapter specifically they're more like um brandon assuring the reader no i thought about this (laughs) yeah that's the other because his um, introduction is him uh, reprimanding Breeze for manipulating Vin, and Breeze saying, "Oh, I didn't manipulate her. I just <laughs> enticed her to perf- made her more likely to do what I asked her to do. But I didn't make her do it. I- I'm not really sure. I saw uh, the characteristic of like Ham asking philosophical questions in this chapter. Um, like." It mostly I, seemed like he was being kind of, I don't know, introduced as, like, a practical person. Um, um I mean, there's, I, I think there's literally, like, a line where Breeze is like, oh, and when he's not beating people up, he's, you know, asking these boring questions. Uh, uh, I think yes, it's like there, literally... there was that, yes. Uh, um, yeah. Breeze says that that's his character trait. I just didn't yes. see it in play. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Um, 
We are also introduced to uh, Clubs, who is a smoker. Smokers are a sort of... Um, so when you use Allomancy, um, people from the Ministry might be able to detect it. Or in, I, I think maybe it's said that Steel Inquisitors might be able to detect it. I don't remember you're, what You're the... getting a little ahead of yourself here. The anyway, point is that a smoker uh, can help conceal people. Yes, yes. Help conceal people using Allomancy. So we meet Clubs, who is a very, like, gruff guy who is also thinking very practically and, like... He's a grumpy old man. He's a grumpy old man. Um, And we meet Yidin, who is the leader of the Ska Rebellion. We'll circle back to that. Uh, Is there anybody else besides Kelsey or Doxon and Vin at this meeting that we haven't met? I don't think so. So, <clears throat> Kelsier shows up late to the meeting with Doxon. Um, oh, this was the thing I was forgetting. It was that they say they're trying to convince Kelsier's brother Marsh to come, um, but Marsh doesn't want to come. But Kelsier's convinced that he will join in on their plan. So, that's the other, uh, like, person here. And that's why I was, like, not remembering him. Um, so, Kelsier says that he's taking on a job. Um, they've been paid 15,000 boxings. That, not that that never matters that much, uh, at least to me. Maybe it's going to end up mattering, but I don't care. Um, <clears throat> uh, 15,000 now, 15,000 after they complete the job, plus whatever bonus stuff. Um, Yeden, the leader of the Scholar of the Rebellion, has like, sort of gone against his own moral code and hired Kelsier and his thieving crew to overthrow the final empire. That is, like, the big heist they're going to do is um, start a revolution against the theocratic uh, government uh, of the Steel Ministry and the Lord Ruler and all these sorts of things. Um, And Kelsier, everybody's like... (gasps) overthrow the final empire the lord ruler has ruled for a millennium we couldn't possibly do it there's all these you know sort of logistical things and the sky rebellion has been trying for a thousand years and has never you know gained any ground there's you know there was that massacre 30 years ago and stuff like that but kelsier is convinced they can pull this off because they're thieves they're good at planning they're good at logistics they're good at heists this is like the thing that they do and he wants them to approach the revolution as a heist and he lays out he wants to... The Lord Ruler um, has a stash of Atium, which is a very valuable metal, and he wants to, like, steal the Lord Ruler's cash of Atium. He wants to introduce financial instability to the Lord Ruler so that the noble houses um, sort of start fighting amongst themselves and, um, you know, uh, he wants to, basically he wants to destabilize, like, Luthadel and the Lord Ruler's power. Um, and hopefully then, like, the Ska Rebellion can, the other part of this is that Kelsier is going to recruit an army for, for the Ska Rebellion that will then swoop in and take advantage of the, uh, destabilized, uh, Luthadel. Um... And then, as they're wrapping up, uh, Kelsier is like, and one more thing. This is a sort of a stretch goal. I'm not 
saying, I'm definitely going to do this, but if I can do this, I'm going to kill the Lord Ruler. And you, as the reader, are reading this and like, oh, he's definitely going to try and kill the Lord Ruler. He says he's not... He says maybe. He says if. But it's pretty obvious, like, that's what he's really here for, is he's going to kill... He wants to kill the Lord Ruler. Um, any Anything I missed in the summary of this chapter? Uh... No, that's pretty much it. Clubs uh, What do we think of... <laughs> Clubs walks out on them uh, after this. Oh, yes. Clubs? Yes. This is important. Um, Clubs thinks this is a crazy plan. He walks out. And then does he come back in Chapter 5 or does he come back here? Comes back in he... Chapter 5. Yeah. Okay, so Clubs thinks this is a crazy plan and he walks out. Uh... And yeah, that's chapter four. Heist. Um, heist. Yeah. <laughs> Step one: is... fuck up the entire economy. Step two: get soldiers. <laughs> Step three: uh, capitalize on the instability and occupy Luthadel. And after that, the Scar Rebellion has to do its own thing. But we're just going to give it to them. If they can't hold it, that's fine. Yes, yes. I forgot that this is part of it, is that Kelsier is saying, like, you know, we're going to get them this far, but we are not going to, like... And you also forgot... You know, a, no further. You also forgot about the other big plot point in this chapter, which, which is... is when Kelsier says that um, he's going to kill Lord Ruler, he pulls out the 11th medal. Oh, right. Yeah, this is like somehow it's rumored that only this metal could kill the Lord Ruler. Yes. The Steel Ministry teaches that he's a god king, that he's immortal, that he couldn't be killed. But there's legends. But there are some places. uh, There are some places that still remember what their country was called before the Lord Ruler. Um. Yeah. And so he's heard about this 11th medal. He's going to kill it. Uh, are you going to use it to kill the Lord Ruler? Oh. Yeah, no, that's it. Um, I... When I... So I love this book. <laughs> the first time I read it and on rereading it, I still find this chapter very corny. I just find this... Yeah. I just find it I, I, ridiculous. And I I, I I find the way that um Kelsier is patronizing to Yeden is like, oh well the Ska Rebellion is <laughs> you don't know how to plan things. For a thousand years you've never hired somebody who knows how to plan things is an absurd proposition. Yeah, the way that the Ska Rebellion is depicted here is very frustrating because it's like they haven't had any success in a thousand years and also they have never thought of using anybody who knows, like, logistics. And also, <laughs> they have always been totally unwilling to break the law. Like, <laughs> what? It's a weird like, <laughs> combination of, like... it. They also mentioned, oh, oh you know, the Scar Rebellion, they live out in the hills, outside of society. It's like, is this a weird, like, anarchist dig? But I, it, yeah, it's 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 frustrating. I don't, 
I think one of the things that is uh, kind of low-key annoying me about the world building of this setting so far is the thousand years thing. Mm-hmm. Because, like, mm-hmm. it just doesn't feel realistic to me that this empire no. has... Not just, like, oh, it's unrealistic to me that they haven't overthrown the... Because, Lo- like, I get it. We're meant to believe he is this, like, almost immortal being. So I'm willing to accept that that allows a kind of expansion of time. That, like, it is actually believable, maybe, that he has maintained power for that long if he's actually like incredibly magically powerful sure whatever set that aside but it still feels like this empire has existed for a thousand years with absolutely no like change like not not just that it has not been overthrown but like it almost seems like there has not been any kind of meaningful unrest um Mm -hmm. and that's very weird just a thousand years of like perfect continuity you know yeah and and that just that that just feels implausible to me like this 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 Mm -hmm. empire should have like a really stormy thousand year history with like all kinds of uprisings probably not just peasant uprisings right like there's all kinds of if it's an empire there must be all kinds of complicated like political factions in it and you'd think that they would oppose the lord ruler all the time but no, it just actually seems like like the Ska Rebellion has been essentially in stasis for a thousand years and has never won any kind of victories or even like mm-hmm. done anything that became meaningful history. They've there just are, always kind of... It's also, there are other little things in this scene. It's It's weird. There's some weird hints about other things about like the the outside like what is it outside of luthadel out in the other the dominances they're called um the lord ruler has other means of entrenching his power they mentioned things called coloss that um would never come to the city itself yeah um as like a thing that the lord ruler controls in order to like maintain his power abroad mm-hmm. but um yeah i don't know yeah um what um yeah i this this chapter is just kind of corny and like I don't know. I I enjoy it. Uh, I have a very powerful sense memory of walking around the grocery store, um, listening to this chapter, and like I had a grin on my face. <laughs> but it is absurd. Also, oh, this was the thing I was gonna say is that this presentation of the Ska Rebellion as like capital T, capital S, capital R, the Ska Rebellion as a uniform thing that has exist that yes. has also existed with some sort of continuity for a thousand years, despite also being crushed time and again by the Lord Ruler is very funny to me. It's not like they don't have some special name like the, the, the Firebrand Seventh Ska Yeah, the Seventh Ska Alliance of Firebrands or something. It is the Ska Rebellion. And it is this thing that has existed to a greater or lesser I extent mean, for a thousand years. If I'm an immortal god emperor and I want to keep my throne it it isn't outside the realm of possibility to think I should make a really ineffective rebellion. <laughs> Just... But like the idea that it's basically been called, I I agree. The idea that like there 
there should be like a bunch of different like ska resistance groups some of which don't agree with each other you know mm-hmm. yes um, but there isn't it isn't yes. like that i i don't know it's frustrating because i don't want to necessarily say oh brandon should have done so much more world building for this like heist adventure you know <laughs> like i honestly almost feel like if there was less world building in this chapter it would be better like mm. if it didn't yeah. need to tell us so much about yeah. the ska rebellion and like specifically it feels like the the chapter is really trying to convince us that this sort of uh steal the entire empire plan is totally different from anything that has previously been tried and that's why it will work and i'm willing to get on board with that concept i don't think the book needed to argue very strenuously like that the every single person who's ever tried to resist the empire before did not know how to do logistics like <laughs> you could have just said this is a plan that's so different from everything that's been before this might just yeah. work and you didn't have to justify it at length in a way yeah. that makes the people who didn't pull off this plan sound like idiots yeah you could you could you could just sell it as this is so crazy that like it might work that's like a line. That's like a trope in fiction, you know, that yeah. like I would just be like, oh, yeah, OK, sure. Whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. It, yeah. And, and and the I also uh, just <laughs> sorry. You go. You go. It feels like he really, really wants to have this dynamic of someone who kind of thinks he's too good for thieves, but who recognizes this is the best way to accomplish his goals with like Kelsier being like, yeah, we're all just thieves here, buddy. Isn't that fun? Um, that's like a fun character dynamic, but the, the fact that in order to make that happen, he has to depict someone who has been part of like resistance to an empire for like generations. He has to depict that guy as being like, well, I'm above, uh, stealing. Like, Mm -hmm. that's just silly. Yeah. Why does this rebellion guy have this like sort of very strict Christian like morality that doesn't make it like... Where does where does this moral code like come from other than just this vague sense of well stealing's bad? Like I can imagine a justification for this if the thief crews were historically like opposed to the rebellion in some way, you know? Like uh-huh. like uh it would be very easy, I think, for him to have a perspective of like you know, these gangs like uh they don't have degrade- ideals, they'll do anything for money. Yeah, or, like, these gangs are, like, degrading our people, you know, like, young ska in the city who are desperate are are joining these organizations because they have nowhere better to go, and it's just all a product of how our masters are keeping us down. Like, you're not the source of the problem, but you're part of it, Hmm. and, like, what young ska actually need to be doing is, like, running off and joining us, and, like, because we have an actually positive social vision for this city, whereas these gangs are just part of the rot. That would be a plausible mm. perspective, right? But that's not being articulated at all. We just need to no. accept that he thinks stealing is wrong and he's moral because he's part of the rebellion. And there's no question about what are the, what is the morality that a rebellion would actually have? How much would it care about rich people's property? Right. We also get the um. line about um, most high-ranking members of the cantons are noblemen um 
Yes. Oh, yes, because this was the thing that we were yeah. wondering about last where, where time. Is, like, uh... who makes up the Steel Ministry? Right. Um, it was where... when Kelsier asks about Vin's parents in this chapter. Oh, that's the previous chapter. At the end of the previous yeah. chapter, he asks about Vin's parents. Oh, yes. Um. Yeah, that, that, that was... Um... Uh, yeah, actually, that is, I didn't think about this. It kind of slipped right over my mind, but most ranking obligators in the ministry are high noblemen. So I guess what that probably means is all ranking obligators are definitely noblemen. Some of them are specifically high noblemen, like Mm -hmm. they're from one of the great houses or whatever. And that means that they have especially strong allomantic potential in their blood, I guess. Yeah. Okay. For a second, I thought what you were saying was most uh, most obligators are noblemen, period. Which would imply that some of them are Ska, which would be fascinating. Right. I, I mean, don't think they, that's the case. They recruit Ska as soldiers. I that's don't know true. if they recruit Ska as ministers. Yeah. yeah. Well, also, ministers and obligators are, or wait. The ministry, the obligators of the ministry, is what I mean. Okay, so the, yeah, and 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 the canton is like a, these there's, are subdivisions. There's too much exhibition in these chapters. <sighs> yeah, yeah, I, well, yeah. Well, the cantons are the, like, organizational branches of the city. There's the canton of finance, the canton of right. the inquisition. The, I was yes, just yes. looking at a map earlier. There's, like, the canton of resources, etc. Yeah, yeah. Um... I just wanted to bring that up because we were asking last week, like, what the class of, mm-hmm. like, the... Of the, the, of the obligators yeah. in the ministry in general. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, one thing that we haven't commented on at all that I wanted to mention was, like, the kind of characterization of this guy, Breeze, mm-hmm. uh, who is... Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget the term for the type of allomancer he is, but he's he's a... Mi- a soother. Soother. He's a misting. He has one power, which seems to be the same, basically, as the power that Vin has understood to be her luck, which is a power mm-hmm. to basically calm people down and make them suggestible. Um, mm-hmm. And we talked about how... A little bit about how he's kind of using it on Vin in this opening scene in a way that's, like, definitely a little bit slimy and he's like well technically yeah. i'm not controlling her mind or whatever and like he's using it to do- shut the fuck up Bree. he's using it to do something that is on the one hand fundamentally doesn't matter he's trying to make her pour him a cup of wine which is like okay who cares i guess that's like not a he's not trying to make her do anything dangerous or that requires real effort but at the same time it's so like um it's so rude it's so dismissive right um mm-hmm. And, uh, like, if he were to order her to pour him some wine, that would be kind of throwing his authority around in sort of a gross way. And this is basically that, except also it's, like, magic that is sort of, like, mind control. Um, mm-hmm. And then, as you said, there's, well, like, this argument where he's like, oh, it's not technically mind control. I just convinced her. I didn't make her do it. And it's like, ah, shut up. Well, and to, to you know, pull a little bit from Chapter 5, Clubs is like... I don't like having conversations with soothers around, even if he wasn't using um, his allomancy on me. Like, th- he's just, like, a very, like, I don't trust the, like, way he's, like, 
persuasive all the time and like you know always trying to like get stuff out of people yeah, what, uh, you what know? club says there is that like even if a soother isn't using their power they're still a soother like that's just it, it sort of like informs a type of person that he personally hates yeah um, yes which is interesting I- of like how you're you know you have this ability all your life that's probably going to shape your personality a little bit Uh, so yeah, I kind of wanted to like comment on Reese's personality a little bit. First of all, yeah, the way that he's like very, um, you know, uh, persuasive and also obviously very like, um, like confident in himself and maybe used to getting his way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I think that's like decent characterization. As you say, I think it kind of makes sense that a character with this power would, would feel like that. Um, but also, like, there's this element where he's, like, wearing, like, a a noble suit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, a nobleman's suit. Plum vest, gold buttons, black overcoat, complete with short-brimmed hat and dueling cane. So, like, he's, you know, he's dressed up like a Victorian gentleman. Um, and it almost feels like he's supposed to be this sort of, uh, like, exaggerated, like, british aristocrat fop (laughs) um Mm -hmm. like he talks like ah this must be our twixt said the man in the suit has kelsier arrived yet my dear like he obviously this is the exact voice that michael kramer uses in the audiobook yeah i know it it says that he has quote well-styled hair but i always picture him as like balding and having long hair Mm. on the back do you know what i mean Sort okay. of like sort of like penguiny, I guess. I mean I don't know how clearly I want to express this concept on this podcast, because this is not our Nate Stairwells. <laughs> but I think this man is a homosexual. <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely like Brandon has perhaps by accident introduced like um campy Joel Schumacher character into this book <laughs> with a boyfriend I, like yeah yeah yes he walks in with like a fucking bear <laughs> like they have banter they have banter they have banter where breeze is talking about how ham is like a sort of dumb jock and ham is like Excuse me, I'm a little more complicated than that. Um, like they're 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 boyfriends. <laughs> they're boyfriends. They're just boyfriends. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I I just wanted to like comment on that whole presentation it, and how like I think there's a certain mm-hmm. like weird kind of gay element to it, but I also think there's like weird and complicated class stuff to it because I mean. There's this whole thing where he, like, dresses up as a nobleman, but I don't think... I believe we're meant to see that as an affectation, because, yeah, like, it wouldn't make any sense for an actual nobleman to be part of a thieving crew like this. Um, so the impression that you get is that this is a guy who likes dressing up and pretending to be a fancy guy. Um, mm-hmm. He keeps calling her my dear. 
It's it writes itself mm-hmm. because you can just picture Ham saying, "Are you manipulating my brain again?" And Bree saying, "Oh, please, there's nothing up there to manipulate." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Or like, how dare you imply that I need to bother with that for you, <laughs> or some shit. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um. I do kind of think, think Breeze sucks. Like, I think he's an asshole, but yeah, he's fun. Yeah, for sure. He's, um, he's, a, he's a fun asshole, which is, like, <laughs> really not a thing that... It's like walking such a fine line, I guess, is all. Because all. Mm-hmm. he could so easily be intolerable. I also like dueling canes. I I look forward mm. to learning more about what's up with those um, because I'm not totally yeah. sure what a duel with canes would look like. I don't really know that much about what using a cane as a weapon is. Um, like, yeah, is it a sword fight or is it? I feel you know... like it's just like, hey, swords are dangerous when people can like use magic on them because they're made of metal. We should have like, basically. It feels like Brandon's saying, you know how nobles have, like, swords that they wear to balls and stuff? It's that, but in a world without metal weapons, broadly. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it, that's definitely, it's clearly, like, a status symbol, um, mm-hmm. and perhaps it is that more than, a like, a real weapon that's actually used. Um, I'm just saying, if there are dueling canes, people probably duel with them, and I'd like to see a, a cane duel. Um <laughs> Me too. Uh, I I do think that if uh, if we don't get to see a cane duel in this book, then I will feel like uh, Brandon has kind of let me down a little bit and like put you know mm-hmm. put a gun on the mantelpiece and then not had it go off. Um. <laughs> um, Shall we talk about the big chapter? Yeah. Okay. Oh, the, I as I was reading chapter five, I almost had this feeling of like we should have done this as a separate episode. This chapter is so long. Do you want me to summarize um, it? I can summarize it. Yeah, you you go. You go. Clubs comes back after everyone has left and explains that he didn't want to do any of his thinking or considering with Breeze around because he's a soother and he doesn't trust him. All that stuff we already talked about. He agrees, and he's also joined by his nephew, this little scrawny kid, or I think a nephew, um, who doesn't speak or, or it isn't named, but he's there. They leave... Kelsier, Docs, and Vin head up to the roof. Kelsier's having a good time looking out over the city, remembering back when he had a wife. Um, then he mm-hmm. uh, takes off his boots, takes off his socks, lets those little p- piggies out, um, <laughs> <laughs> removes all metal from his person, except for a pouch of coins and his vials of metals, and he puts on the mist cloak. The, the the big cosplay item from this setting, which is a cloak that is made of stitched ribbons. So from, like, mid-chest down, it is just, just di- like, individual strips of black cloth. Um, and he, like, he dons this, and he hops off into the mist, flying through the city by means of using allomancy to push and pull on metal objects in, like, the world. Um, of course, you can only push or pull as much as you weigh. So if you, for example, toss a coin on the ground and push on it, you will fly into the sky because the coin uh, can't move just into the ground. So he does this. He, like, pulls on windowsills and pushes on rooftops and uses this to sort of, like, 
quote-unquote fly through the mist to the uh, estate of Lord Venture, who he's been informed is the uh, noble house least likely to be, like, hit. Because um turns out that all the noble houses are always kind of fighting amongst each other a little bit, but it's very covert. Um, so he pops in, and he just starts killing people. Because he needs to steal Keep Venture's stash of Adium. And he has a big fight with Haze Killers, which are soldiers specifically trained to fight Mistings. They use wood, big wooden shields and dueling canes, and they don't wear any metal. So they use the shields to block the coins that Kelsier throws at them and, like, shoots with his powers. Um, and we get sort of like a, an in-action introduction to various allomantic powers in this action scene. We have Tin, which we already saw in the prologue, to uh, really enhance physical senses. We have Pewter to enhance physical strength. And steel and iron are the two that allow um, for the pushing and pulling. So he's doing this. Uh, Pewter is also like endurance as well as physical strength. It's like um, it makes your body like harder to damage and it makes you more able to deal with pain as well. Um, so he has a big fight scene where he kind of kind of gets the shit kicked out of him a little bit. Yeah. But eventually he's able to grab the safe out of Venture's study and smash it by pulling it with him off of the keep. Uh, it breaks on impact with the ground and he's able to root through it and takes a couple things. He takes uh, letters of credit for a bunch of money he takes some gemstones and he takes a tiny pouch with a little bit of adium in it he needs this because he spent most of his adium procuring Orsur's contract which is just some words that he says and he's he used the la the last little bit of of what he had after that in his attack on the trusting uh uh plantation at the beginning of the book so with that he escapes toward uh clubs's shop albeit uh mildly injured i guess i say mildly but he says that if he stops burning pewter he'll probably faint <laughs> um yeah i think that's it I think that's everything. He kills a bunch of people by um, bashing them to death with like an ingot of metal. Right. The 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 big like <laughs> um the big climax of the fight scene is this sequence where he's taking this paperweight and he's whipping it around. He hits people, he throws it at people, he like pulls it toward him and then ducks to hit somebody behind him. It's just constantly like doing this weird dance with this big lump of metal. Uh, as he's like whipping it around the room, and it's a really cool in, like introduction to him, things that Alamancy can do. It's very much like that, you know, because it's literally he's just like in this study, and he's like, oh, "I need a piece of metal. What can I use?" And he sticks out his hand, and there's a paperweight, and that's what he uses as like an improvised weapon for the rest of the fight. Um, it is cool, and it definitely is like, uh, 
This does sell the idea of Kelsier as like a, a brutal man a little bit more than most other things have because he is bludgeoning people to death with a, a chunk of metal. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's very uh, gory, <laughs> I guess. There's um, like the part where he pushes his whole coin pouch against somebody's shield and just shoves them all the way out through a window and off of like the keep and then after he leaves the keep with his stuff he walks over and he finds the dead body and he's like oh my coin pouch (laughs) take that back home (laughs) yeah um yeah uh but this is this is the section where we get where we understand that kelsier is totally happy to kill noble soldiers and Mm -hmm. even like ska who have uh you know who who have also who also work as like guards or who work for the nobles Mm -hmm. basically um um we also get a little bit of backstory for kelsier as his he remembers some training that he got from the guy who taught him how to be a Mistborn, whose name is Jemmel. Uh, he mentions that, you know, you're not actually changing your weight when you're flying through the air. You're not some northern mystic. Uh, you got to be careful about what the hell you're doing with this magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the Mistcloak thing... Uh... It's very funny to me because, uh, I mean, so it it is clearly, there's a lot in this chapter that feels very, like, um, very self-consciously visual. Um, it it yeah. does honestly feel like this action sequence, as it might be depicted in a movie or a TV show, is, like, being imagined. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, and that's not me objecting to that, but this cloak in particular, like, I don't know if I can say that it was written with cosplay in mind because this was, you know, the, the sure, time this yeah. was written. I don't know if, like, it wasn't clear yet that Brandon was going to be so big that, like, people would be cosplaying stuff. I just books. mean, speaking from 2021. Oh, yeah. yeah. It this, is. Is, this has become a big cosplay item. And, like, even if it wasn't, like, literally Brandon was thinking people are going to cosplay this, mm. the Mist Cloak is absolutely written as a distinctive and cool piece of clothing that you can picture visually and you can imagine what it would look like if you actually made one of those in right. real life. It, it is, like, it's a compelling little piece of gear, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also don't really understand, like, like, when Kelsier puts it on... Doxon is clearly, like, impressed by it. He's like, I've never been so close to someone wearing one of those. And then when Vin asks what it is, he explains, a Mistborn cloak. They all wear the things. It's kind of like a sign of membership in their club. So it sounds like there's, like, a secret society of Mistborn that Kelsier is a part of. This, like, brotherhood of Mm -hmm. people with this power and they've all agreed to wear a distinctive jacket maybe i killed Um, a jedi and took it from him (laughs) maybe um but yeah and then like kelsier gives some practical justifications about like oh it hides you in the mist and it warns city guards and other mistborn not to bother you which is like i feel like those are contradictory things like are you trying to sneak and hide from people or are you trying trying to make your status evident so that people don't bother you um, I assume, like, if right, you're, yeah, if from the from like from the ground, people will see you less. But if you're like on the rooftops and like some guards, like, hey, what's that? Oh, miss. Okay, now I'm not gonna look at that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, anyway, it, it is cool. I just uh, wanted to point out some things about it that I thought were a little yeah. funny. Um, um, um is so say. fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, this this uh, this this like coin parkour is pretty sick. Um, it's sick. Throwing oh, coins so around sick. is very cool. I can't deny that. I do like want to learn a little more about um, why it's specifically coins. Like, it's because uh, they're metal. I know it's because they're metal. The question in my mind is, why do this specifically with money? Is that just because it's a convenient way that you can get your hands on a small piece of metal? I um, think. I it's because the only people who are supposed to have the power are nobles, which means they have lots of money. And so it's easy okay. for them to just toss a few boxings around. Right. I I think that yes, I understand that. Um there I feel like there's something going on either in a world-building sense or just on some level like symbolically with the fact that the tools that can be best used for the magic are also literally money. Um, like <laughs> this, this is a Sanderson level, thing. Yeah, yeah, on some level, having stated that, it just feels like so obvious in terms of like its kind of <laughs> metaphorical <laughs> implications. Um, but but I guess it's also like like I I want to think about why in this context um, the Lord Ruler would have chosen to mint metal coins in this way. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I know that part of the answer is there's not that many Mistborn, and so it wouldn't necessarily make total sense for, like, every aspect of the administration of the Empire to be designed. Or, like, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to cinema sins this and be like, oh, why didn't they simply not use metal coins, uh, like, poor planning on the Empire's part? No, I'm sure there could be interesting reasons for this, and I want to know what they are. Yeah. Um, I know that... We had gold boxings mentioned. I don't remember if there are multiple types of... There must be multiple types of metal that they use. I just don't remember what they are. Boxing is like an interesting name. I it, it I feel like it strongly implies some kind of... Like maybe there's some situation where these coins are packed in boxes or something. Uh, just because it's a real world. It's almost a real world word. It makes me mm. want to un- understand what it implies about the money, I guess. Um, mm. Like, what a box is. What boxing is, I guess. Yeah. Um, I just think it's cool when um, he reaches into the safe and all that gu- all those guards, that big fucking heavy metal safe, the, you know, hiding it behind the mural or whatever... All that for like a tiny little bag of ATM, just like a tiny little bag. I just think that's neat. Yeah, <laughs> the the safe cracking open because he fell from the tower is pretty great. Also, like yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that part. That part's great. That I'm rules. Suck energy to me. <laughs> um. Um. Else? Do we have anything else about Chapter 5? We didn't really remark upon um, Kelsier just standing on the roof being like, man, I missed when my wife was alive. I loved having a wife. Yeah, Kelsier, Kelsier is a, a dead wife guy. Yeah. One of the more powerful mm-hmm. varieties of wife guy. Um, 
We're we're at two now. We've got Diloph and Kelsier, dead wife guys. I forgot Screw. about Diloph's dead wife. <laughs> Never forget about Diloph's dead wife. I'm always thinking wife. about Diloph's dead wife. <laughs> He's so young looking. No. He's not actually. That's the thing. It's I said so he's young up looking. Is that he's old. Oh my god. Um, I oh okay. I, we're getting a little punchy, but I and I know this is a silly thing to talk about, but I really do need to ask: Why the fuck is Kelsier barefoot? What does he get out of it? He very specifically takes off his shoes and lets his toes breathe in order to go on his like sick parkour heist. But the only thing that's mentioned about it is actually that it makes things more difficult for him because when he turns on his enhanced senses, like, his sense of touch also becomes more sensitive and so it's actually kind of painful to be walking around barefoot. So so we've heard about the drawbacks, which are kind of obvious. I could have told you that if you're, like, running around and kicking off of shit, it's going to hurt your feet, even if your senses aren't enhanced. This is why people wear shoes. Like, shoes were invented so that your feet wouldn't have to touch painful things on the ground. Part of it might be that there's metal in his shoes. Where? What shoes? Uh, like, nails, I guess. Shoes will often have metal nails, especially, like, I don't know, in the 19th century. But okay, get some fucking wooden shoes, some leather shoes. Not that hard. Leather. Leather. That was the word I was looking for. I was like, wood, not wood. You can get shoes that have been sewn together from leather that don't have metal in them anywhere. And if you absolutely mm-hmm. needed some kind of nails, I'm sure you could get wooden nails to do the trick. Or, like, any mm-hmm. other metal. Bo- bone. Horn. Plastic. We don't know that they don't have plastic. Man, if they had plastic, <laughs> this whole thing would be overturned. <laughs> uh, um, maybe he likes it. Maybe he likes being barefoot. <laughs> That's the only, like, available possibility at this point. I I have to assume, yeah, this is just fun for him. I don't remember um. if everyone else is barefoot in, in this one. But if the next Mistborn we see is, like, if he tells Vin to take her socks off to do Allomancy, <laughs> no! he's, he has to give us an explanation. Oh my god, I really hope that doesn't happen. I feel like, I'm starting to feel like it might happen. Oh boy! It, it, I like, don't. I don't remember that happening. But like, it's also I don't know. So upsetting. Cause Could happen. Hasn't it been established? Hasn't it been established that the streets are fucking filthy with ash? Yeah. And like, yes. Like the, just in <laughs> general, the, the ground them. is disgusting. <sighs> oh, um, I had another totally one hundred million percent unrelated thought. Um. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to cut anybody off. No, go ahead. I just, I got a big laugh out of, I don't remember, I think maybe it was Ham, but one of the crew members is introduced, uh, and Vin is like, I couldn't quite place his age. He looked kind of like on the older side, but maybe he was younger, and I just, I got a big <laughs> laugh out of that. Yeah, what is this thing about guys who look kind of sort of old and sort of young? What does that, what does that mean to Brandon? Yeah, this is um uh Clubs. Clubs has a distinctive face that is knotted and gnarled like a twisted piece of wood. Right. And he he is young enough that he wasn't stooped over, yet he was old enough that he made even the middle-aged breeze look youthful. So he's he seems very old but also not stooped at all, I guess. <laughs> 
It's a confusing description. <laughs> we really need to know the details about, about the how old certain guys look. <laughs> um, are we done here? <laughs> well, what are we going to do about the... Uh, um... yeah, I'm, I'll read them. All right, go for it. Oh, yes, yes. I almost forgot. So we have Thank you. Chapter three. We arrived in Terrace earlier this week, and I have to say, I found the countryside beautiful. The great mountains to the north, with their bald snow caps and forested mantles, stand like watchful gods over this land of green fertility. My own lands to the south are mostly flat. I think they might look less dreary if there were more mountains to vary the terrain. The people here are mostly herdsmen, though timber harvesters and farmers are not uncommon. Uncommon. It is a pastoral land, certainly. It seems odd that a place so remarkably agrarian could have produced the prophecies and theologies upon which the entire world now relies. Chapter 4. Apparently the next stage of my quest will take us into the highlands of Terrace. This is said to be a cold, unforgiving place, a land where the mountains themselves are made of ice. Our normal attendants will not do for such a trip. We should probably hire some Terrace packmen to carry our deer. Carry our gear. In chapter 5, I don't even understand what I'm supposed to do. The terrace philosophers claim that I'll know my duty when the time comes, but that's a small comfort. The deepness must be destroyed, and apparently I'm the only one who can do so. It ravages the world even now. If I don't stop it soon, there will be nothing left of this land but bones and dust. Uh, Things used to be different. Yeah, yeah. There was, like, Uh, trees and stuff. There's the deepness. Green, Green existed. Mm-hmm. There's a bit in the mm-hmm. in in uh, chapter five that I I found very funny, like very heavy handed, where uh, he like breaks into like a um, like a conservatory, mm-hmm. like a room where there are plants, and it's like ah, I I know without even looking that these plants are gonna have like unusual colors, like uh, yellow or like like white, because any plants that aren't brown are really exotic, and it's just like okay. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I get it. Like I understood I that like all the crops were <laughs> fucked up. This is a little bit like there would be ways I think to talk about this without um, being quite so much like turning to camera and being like all the plants are fucked. Do you get it? Climate. Mm. <laughs> it's important. But but you know uh, I we know that and so it's yeah it's different in these. These italicized sections. I thought that the um the, the the little crack about like it seems surprising that such an agrarian place could have produced these scriptures is like very funny. Um yeah. because like uh I don't know what he thinks about agrarian people that would mean that they couldn't produce prophecy. Like it sort mm-hmm. of sounds like what he's saying is that this is a place that is like relatively uneducated, maybe. Um, Mm -hmm. but a lot of, like, the fact that it's specifically prophecy, I'm like, I don't actually really associate prophecy necessarily with, like, education, or at least I think you could sometimes associate it with that, but I also feel like I associate it with just, like, being touched by divine power, and I don't know what, I mean, fundamentally what I think is going on here is that Brandon is making kind of a winking joke about real world scriptures, um... Because, like, right. you know, the ancient, like, Israelites were mostly herdsmen. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it feels like he's kind of being like, oh, it kind of makes you think about how the Bible was not necessarily written by, like, 
the most educated of people, but maybe just by simple farmers, huh? <laughs> or something and, like that. And what are you going to do with that observation, Brandon? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> And, you know, it's also, I want to be clear, that's kind of a weird, that would that would actually be, like, a very strange way of talking about, like, the Hebrew Bible, because it was written by, like, the most educated and literate members of its society, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, but but I think that, that's, that that, like, sort of connection to, like, an ancient agrarian culture is, I don't know, I think that's what's happening here. I could that be wrong. Sense. Uh, yeah, Brandon... Religion seems kind of important to Brandon a little bit. Yeah, I would say that seems to be the case. Um, Maybe we'll get more of that in this book. Maybe he'll actually develop it in this book. (laughs) Yeah, I am certainly very interested to find out more about, like, what these uh, prophecies and, like, teachings that the world relies on are. I'm really curious what it means for the world to rely on, like... Uh, religious texts like I'm not saying it is a um, I'm not saying that uh, I don't understand it at all like it it implies that yeah like all the world believes believes in this theology and like needs it in some sense to like understand the world but there's something about the phrasing that almost makes you think of like technology like it would be very normal and like not something to remark upon at all if someone said you know this how strange that this small place produced like uh you know the like internet infrastructure that the whole world relies on now right mm-hmm. um but the idea of relying on theology is a little different like what does the theology provide to the average person why do they rely on it what maybe do they need from it maybe he means it like th- they rely on it because it's bringing me the chosen one yeah, that's a certainly one possibility. Because um, of the deepness. Yeah. The deepness. <laughs> Capital D, deepness. I'm a I'm a legendary hero on a quest against the, the concept of depth. <laughs> I am not going to let anybody in the mystical realm that I'm trying to save understand anything on more than one level. If you portray a murderer in your... In your play, you are a murderer. <laughs> like, I, I'm i joking, but I do feel like uh, f- people who... I, I feel like a uh, like legendary hero on a quest to slay the concept of uh, intellectual depth is, like, a mean thing you could say about Brandon's books. <laughs> <laughs> legendary hero on a quest to uh, destroy Metroid Prime. Super Metroid will be the only... Um... God. <sighs> Bro, stop fighting the uh, symbol of intellectualism. You're scaring the hoes. <laughs> <laughs> Mark? Yeah? Where can people find you online? You can find me online at Char Asnablunt, um, and you can listen to my other podcast, Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements, which is a Moby Dick podcast, at abnormalmapping.com slash whale. Uh, and I hope you do listen to it. Uh, we're, uh, we will probably have put out the last episode about the actual book 
uh, by the time this episode goes live. So yeah, we finished reading Moby Dick. It's very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Nice. Autumn. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Autumnal underscore coffee. All the other podcasts at exportodd.io. That is also the Patreon where you can give us a dollar and get access to this podcast early or perhaps Hot Singles Early, a podcast that I'm only semi-regularly on now. There's an episode that just went up while we've been recording um, uh, that I'm not on. Um, it's got Hannah. Um, it's got um, Buchanan. It's got Regs, uh, but not me, so... Yeah. You can find me on Twitter at NeitherNora. Find stuff I've done at NoraBlake.online. If you subscribe to the Patreon, you can also get access to Back to the Ark, my Marble Hornets podcast. We um, just recorded through the end of Season 1 of Marble Hornets. So, look forward to that. Um, uploads every Tuesday and Thursday. I guess thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon.